0: hey Shauna
1: hey how you doing
0: I'm doing really well this week and I have the best subject for us to talk about Um, (laughs) Sounds juicy already did you see that Instagram post uh, related to black girls run and a white woman had emailed them accusing them of reverse racism
1: Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I, I saw that one. And um, I, I had time on that day, I, I started scrolling through to see what the perspectives were on that. And, you know, yes, I took it a little personally. Um, that's how I got started in endurance sports with black girls run. So I, I took it a little personally, definitely.
0: Well, I think seeing as this is our last episode, um, before we take a break uh, and wait for 2021 to come around, I figured we should go out with a bang, with some fire. Um, so, oh. I mean, here's how I feel about reverse racism. It's not a thing. Uh, it's
1: not a thing. Not even close to a thing. I, I, I concur. I concur. So, well, let's walk, let's walk folks through this. You know, they want to hear and, and we're going to share. So let's uh, think about this out loud. It's, it's not a thing. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns.
0: And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she,
1: her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, you know, I saw that post on Instagram and yes, I was very offended, but then I had to kind of revert back out. It's kind of like playing double dutch. It's like, okay, how am I taking this personally, but how am I also taking this as a professional and a DEI person? And reverse racism just literally is not a thing. And in fact, sometimes I think people use the language not even knowing what the definition is or how Mm -hmm. it's been used historically, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I'm not expecting everyone to walk around as a scholar, obviously. But um, the textbook definition of reverse racism is perceived discrimination against a dominant group or a political majority. So given that most people use this language and historically it's been used, when people opposed affirmative action and so dominant groups felt as if they were being discriminated against and so that's where the language comes from some people don't know that but even for those who do know that they still take it as a personal affront and so reverse racism is a word that's thrown around and i literally start shutting down my neurons my brain neurons when i hear the word it just it it does not make sense mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah like it doesn't like it um when you have two words next to each other that are in contradiction to each other, that's called something. It's
1: oxymoron. That. I Thank got you, you. <laughs> oxymoron.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we were trying to figure out, um, how this term came about. And so we did a little, uh, Googling to try and figure it out, Shauna and I, and it, you know, it evolved, um, from way back in the 1800s all the way through to today, but is, uh, a tool of the dominant group, primarily white people. Um, to stop the forward progress or the equality of folks of color. Um and so it's strategic, right? So it is, um, I think it's blanketed in we need to treat everyone the same, no matter their racial identity, right? So there's that colorblindness ideology that's creeping in there, but it's a strategic move by white people to maintain power. Um, it may not be a conscious strategic move, I think, by white people to maintain power, but that's absolutely what it does, right? That we are not, this, our country must treat everyone equally, right? Mm -hmm. Equality is a founding Mm -hmm. principle of the United States, although Mm -hmm. apparently that founding principle was forgotten for some 300 years. But, you know, this Mm -hmm. this isn't a history class.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, and exactly. And I think, you know, once again, this is how dominant cultures work that want to stay dominant, is that they use language or they use behavior as weapons. So it's not just, and we've talked about this before, Lisa, around the harm that people have inflicted upon them. It's not always physical harm. Oftentimes, it's the use of emotions or the use of language. And this is one of those uses of language where it's used to harm individuals. It's used to both, um, this reminds me of um, when I did some mission work as uh, a graduate student up in Philadelphia, where they had those uh, fences that had spokes at the top of them, these spikes at the top of them. And I was told that legend says that um, that fence with the spikes on top, it has a twofold purpose. Part of it is to keep good spirits in and part of it is to keep bad spirits out. And sometimes I feel like the use of this language is a weapon. It's a defense mode that it keeps what it feels as good Mm -hmm. in and Mm -hmm. it keeps what they feel as bad out. And so the defensiveness of language like reverse racism is trying to protect what's already been there, Mm -hmm. which is white people having privilege in lots of different systems, but specifically in the United States.
0: Well, and then white people believing that that privilege that they have is normal. Right, that that's just the way things are, mm-hmm. not necessarily in contradiction to or in opposition of people of color's disadvantage, but just kind of this is my life, this is how I understand things to be, and any any attempt at kind of um, re reworking that system is an affront, and you're trying to take something away from me. And I know yes. that we've talked about yes. that before in terms of kind of mm-hmm. thinking about privilege as. Um, you are trying to remove things that I am entitled to, but I'm not actually entitled mm-hmm. to them in the first place. I just believe mm-hmm. that I am because the system in which I live um, allows me to think that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just want to call attention to. Um, there's a, an image online that you can find and it talks about U.S. history and it talks about kind of how U.S. history has progressed in terms of equality between white people and particularly Black and African-American people. And, you know, in the last several hundred years, um, about 350, 360 years, all the way through to the 1950s and 1960s, um, starting in 1619, there have been either um, legally sanctioned inequality um, through the enslavement of African people and Jim Crow and segregation, um, or there has been a kind of uh, extra legal um, segregation and disenfranchisement. I mean, you can see that right now, even in the 2020 yeah. election, right? There's still mm-hmm. stuff happening in states across the country where people of color, communities of color are being disenfranchised on purpose. So. When we think about reverse racism and we think about racism as a system um, versus Mm -hmm. an an individual behavior, you know, most of the United States history is predicated and built upon a system of racism. So Mm -hmm. it just makes me laugh a little bit for a white person to say that reverse racism is a thing because it's just, I mean, the numbers don't add up to that.
1: Not at all. The The numbers don't add up to it. And I think what's so interesting, too, is I constantly try to think through a both a black lens, which I already have, and also what could possibly be a white lens. And it makes sense that someone would bring up this term to protect what they've had forever. And, you know, when I think about how they could perceive certain things like affirmative action, you know, all of these things that are attempting to correct generations of wrongs. It looks as if something that used to be in balance for a white person to go out of balance, when in fact it was imbalanced all along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the goal is to put things back into balance by using these tools like affirmative action and some other tools that are used to put a system in balance. Now, where the conundrum comes in is that is this particular system set up to be imbalanced at all? Or do we need to build a brand new system from scratch? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's one to think about that, you know, is the system itself imbalanced? It's almost like saying, well, I'm trying to make sure that this picture in a frame is hung level in this house. But what if the whole house is imbalanced? What if the whole house is off? Then the picture frame on the wall is going to be imbalanced. And so, you know, where does the balance come in but i still think whether whether the house is in balance or not white folks claiming that there is reverse racism that cannot happen against a group that has been privileged from the start that right. it's just not possible
0: right and we also see that in endurance sports specifically um related to sexism so re- the idea of reverse sexism right we're going to create more spots for women because we acknowledge the historical mm-hmm. disadvantage women have had in sport and their historical exclusion so in 2020, women are not on the same playing field as men when it comes to sport. And trans people are even lower um, on the ladder than women. And so we need to address that inequality by creating opportunities that likely men will feel disadvantage them, but they don't actually disadvantage them. Right. So there's absolutely corollaries to thinking about this in the endurance sport context, particularly if you're thinking about your club, about your race, about other, you know, industry or organizations, and how do you do a better job of creating a more inclusive space of having, um, a more diverse representation of leaders in your organization, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, we're thinking about the question you pose, Shauna, always brings me back to like the burn it all down um, or the <laughs> kind of like working within, surgically removing things brick by brick, brick and putting it back together again, right? Versus the burn it all down. And, um, right. <laughs> which makes me think about that article in Medium um, that talks about white fragility. Or white flammability, which we will link in our show notes for folks to read, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as it relates to uh, reverse racism.
1: Oh, Lisa, that article was so good. I cannot wait for listeners to read that article. So, Medium always has uh, pretty good articles on lots of different topics that kind of um, skirt between uh, social media and scholarly commentary. So, I think it's a good, happy medium between people that want to get uh, they want to get in depth in and these particular concepts. And the reason why I love that article, the article was written uh, by an an Asian woman as based on what I can perceive from the profile. And what was so awesome about the article, it was literally (laughs) speaking of shifting the language from white fragility, which Robin D'Angelo brought forth from her scholarship. So from white fragility to white flammability. And When I read this article, I'm thinking to myself now, I'm going into the article thinking, oh, yeah, burn this whole thing down. Or, you know, from a white person's perspective, you know, anything can catch them on fire um, when it comes to anger and defensiveness. And so, you know, I think uh, you and I, Lisa, should write a uh, article that builds upon that Mm -hmm. person's (laughs) article because, you know, I I think – You know, there are lots of different ways for white people to catch on fire when it comes to the defensiveness and anger towards the recalibration of this country. And what I mean by that is, you know, reverse racism to me is a symptom of flammability. It's a symptom of a white person being fiery mad about what they Mm -hmm. are experiencing when they witness the recalibration of this country in favor of everyone and not just in favor of them and their groups. And so that whole flammability thing, uh, yes, we could just tear that article apart and put it back together, but it's a great example of the trajectory of the experience of white people as they have to face those that are not willing to um, just roll over and accept white privilege Mm -hmm. or systemic Mm -hmm. racism.
0: Yeah, and so if you think about whiteness, as more than an identity, right, as more than an individual identity, racial identity, and we've talked about this before, that whiteness is an ideology, it is a system, it is an institution, right, then the concept of white fragility, I think, falls down, because when we think about the history of the United States, we can see um, that whiteness has endured, right, how whiteness is embedded or um, privileging whiteness is embedded in our institutions and in our structures and the way that we even think about sport, the way we think about professionalism, it's imbued with um, concepts of whiteness. And so it's not fragile in that sense. It has, um, It is not easily broken. It is not easily shattered like glass because if it That's were, right. then we probably That's wouldn't right. be in this situation now, right? So I think that the flammability versus fragility is a take is an interesting take when we think about whiteness beyond the concept of identity, um, beyond that initial individual defensive reaction. And I think that's where the author's going with it, right? Is that because mm-hmm. we have an enduring system of whiteness in our structures, in our institutions, in our economy, mm-hmm. um, yeah. we can't just we can't just break it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I think so. You know,
1: let's make the distinction clear. So white fragility is referring to individual white folks ability or inability to handle um, the stress that comes from discussing race and facing racial concepts and so as an individual a white person may be like hold up wait a minute I am not in a place where I'm able to emotionally, mentally or otherwise handle these conversations about race because I've never had to. I've never been pressed to. It has not been essential to my being as it would be for someone who's disenfranchised. So I've never had to do this. Um, I I did a, a, a workshop earlier with another group that are they're grappling with white ability. And the way that I described it was, and this goes back to a little bit of endurance sport as well, is that People of color, LGBT folks, pick a group that has been disenfranchised in any way. Those groups, groups that I identify with, the, a group that you identify with as well as a woman, we have been picking up that 50, 60, 70 pound weight for the entirety of our lives because we've never been able to separate our identity of our our oppressed identity. So I've never been able to unzip my African-American suit and take it off and be something else. You have not been able to unzip your woman's suit and leave it somewhere else so people don't have to judge you by that. So we've been carrying that heavy weight our entire lives. So imagine a white person, specifically a white male who has yet to lift a five pound weight and we're requiring Mm -hmm. those individuals to lift that 50, 60, 70 pound weight without the capability of doing so. That's where white fragility comes in. Now, please don't make it seem as if I am creating a sympathetic uh, narrative around white folks or white men. Mm-hmm. I'm not. You're still on the hook. You still got to do your work. But I am saying is that people of color, I am I am not surprised as a person of color that a white person or a white male does not know how to have these conversations and feels uh, very, extremely uncomfortable by these conversations because you've never had to do it. You've never had to do it. And so I think white fragility is a different concept. When we get into white flammability, that's when we're in a place where the defensiveness of whiteness is is that ember that's always warm underneath. And it only takes a small affront for that white person to be like, wait a minute, you're not taking this away from me. I mean, it, that's that's where the embers stay warm and they can be lit very easily and very quickly. Um, and so I think the the fragility and the flammability are just great concepts to think about. And and what's the trajectory of a white person to go along with that, uh, that flammability? You know, I, I think it can happen in lots of different phased ways, as, as we've talked about before.
0: Yeah. And I also think about flammability um, like a forest fire. Right. So fragility is the individual tree perhaps and um yeah yeah. the flammability is the entire forest and so you know there's a kind of there's a big response um when those embers that you talk about are um sparked into a fire right i think back to affirmative action specifically in an educational context and in 1978 there was a supreme Court, court case with the regents of the university of california against um a guy named Backey, I forget his last name, but essentially it was the Supreme court um, ruled in the seven in 78. And I think in 1978, the Supreme court was all white and all male, or at least mostly white and male um, because I don't think the first woman was on there until the eighties. They ruled that racial quotas in the context of education was discrimination against white people. So you have this, legal framework now from 1978 right so that's this so the whole thing the whole forest got set alight in terms of um the uh flammability piece you know the one guy the fragility and then the whole forest and then it was entrenched in our legal system through a decision um at the supreme court that still stands to this day so when we think about um that forest fire, right? This is where I, I come to the connections that I make in my head is there are there's a concept in forest management called controlled burning. And I will raise my hand here and say, I'm not an expert on this concept because I do not do this for a living. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> but my understanding of the controlled burn in the forest is that um, it is intended to pre- prevent much larger forest fires, right? So it cleans out debris, It um, gets rid of um, leaves and other dry areas and then can also act as a barrier if there is a forest fire. If an area has been burned then that forest fire can't move move through that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of pros and cons to forest fire control, forest controlled burning. Um, And so it's really an interesting connection I think to when we think about white flammability, whiteness and reverse racism.
1: Yeah, so, so here's the thing. So, you know, if we're, okay, so let's just say, for example, we're accepting the fact that white folks will have to burn in one way or another, they will have to burn, whether it's burning because of their own uh, perceived positionality, whether it's their defensiveness, whatever it may be. So how can we frame this in a way that's a productive kind of white development theory where people go through a process where that burning goes from um, defensive to proactive, somewhere mm-hmm. in an allyship area, because I think that's what needs to happen. I think that you're you're right. That first phase of the burning is the burning denial that white privilege even exists, um, that there cannot be a need for affirmative action and other actions that help to recalibrate our country. So, you know, that first phase is the denial part of the white privilege. No, I I am not privileged. Everybody had to work hard. I had to work hard. I haven't had the easiest life. You're right. You haven't had the easiest life, but any negative or any challenge that you've had in your life as a white person was not based on race. Mm -hmm. Yep. So given that, so that's the first burning process, but then you have this second burning process that I think we should have. And this kind of adds to that article in medium is that Let's burn this shit off. Let, let's let's figure out why are you defensive. It's another layer of self-reflection. Why are you defensive? Are you defensive because you've been conditioned to fend off anyone from what you think you've earned or what you've gotten? Um, is it I need to burn off why I may feel inadequate anytime there's a person of color around me who is adequate? What what are the reasons for the defensiveness? Because some people are holding on to things for various reasons. Um, And I just had a discussion with a group earlier today. Some folks are defensive simply because they want to hold on to what's familiar and what's comfortable. And so that's when they get into niceness and peacekeeping and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so they haven't burned past that discomfort. And so that's, you know, a second layer of burning. But then we get into that third layer of burning of when there is a realization that, oh, there's been a historic problem that, no, maybe as a white person, I did not initiate or I didn't uh, (laughs) I didn't strike the match to start the fire, but um, I'm still burning as a result of it, and so therefore, how can I figure out how I'm not going to be um, part and parcel with what's going on here? I'm not going to continue to be incendiary, and in fact, I'm gonna burn for a different reason. I'm going to burn in ways of, of passion for highlighting injustices that I didn't even know I was a part of. Now, that's a different type of burn, and I think that goes beyond the article, but I think it's something that white folks overall just need to consider. Why are we so defensive? Why are we so frustrated? Why are we so, um, you know, literally turning our ears off whenever we hear anything that even remotely smells of justice and injustice and the correction of those Mm -hmm. processes? We just, white folks turn completely off when in fact that's the common language of disenfranchised folks.
0: Yeah. 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 And what you're, you're sharing there makes me think about the episode we did on resistance a couple of weeks back where we talked about the necessity yeah, for people yeah. to really think about where is your resistance coming from, right? Because you can't move mm-hmm. through it. You can't burn it off <laughs> until you actually kind of have a uh, come to Buddha conversation with yourself about um, why it's there, right? And what it means. Um, I really like this forest fire analogy. Like it's really working for me in terms of um, like how devastating it can be if it's not controlled, right? So it can be devastating, yes, yes, like devastating to the self, but it can also be devastating to your community, right? It can really put a barrier in the way of working on like recalibrating, again, another great word that you're using there, recalibrating your sports organization, right? Recalibrating your race. um, If you're not really controlling that burn and it's just like exploding in an out of control way and um, you're not taking, you're not being intentional and thoughtful about how to do that um, because that's what we see with forest fires, right? They're really destructive when they're out of control. They cause health problems. They trigger yes, a whole bunch yes. of other environmental problems, devastate ecosystems, take away people's homes, um, you know. And that's, I think, reverse racism as a concept, is, is in there in terms of that kind of flammable response, right? Like, um, it's a like I'm what's the word I'm thinking of? It's like almost a knee-jerk reaction. Um, Mm -hmm. to uh, maybe a subconscious feeling of being threatened. And then so poof, right? The whole thing goes up.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that is kind of what, um, and it's more than just, I think it's beyond ignition in any way. I mean, it it literally is, maybe it's combustion. I don't know. Maybe that's the word for it. Where, Mm. you know, Mm. someone literally combusts because it's like, wait a minute, you've completely exploded obliterated what I thought I knew and I'm like wait a minute let me hold on to that this is something and you know come to think of it you know we both work in higher ed spaces and a lot of my work is with college professors and prof- and I do a lot of faculty development work so I'm helping professors to teach better to administrate to work with students better etc and what's been so provocative in 2020 is that so many of the professors that I work with, many of which are at the top of their game. They, they're they not just, you know, someone that just came in to teach one or two classes. These are people who have been promoted to full professor who um, still have a long career ahead, but they're at the top of their game as a professor. And I have dialogues with them about what they do. And they're literally weeping because they're those that are sold out on uh, on justice and, and social justice and creating that balance or at least uh, recalibrating they're in tears because they're realizing, oh my God, I went to some of the best schools in the country. I dedicated my entire life to my craft. Um, I've done right by students as best as I could. And now I'm looking back on an entire career where I left out ideas, notions, even ways to teach underrepresented students well. And I feel like I have been Um, hoodwinked and bamboozled. I I feel as if, and, and for those white professors, I hear what they're saying, because they feel like, holy crap, not only was I not aware, which that's their responsibility as an individual, but also every Everything that they've used to educate themselves in order to be the best they could at their game still was lacking because mm-hmm, they didn't even mm-hmm. have the tools to fill in the gaps. So, you know, when I have a, a dep- an entire department, a field of study that says, I don't know how to integrate diversity, equity and inclusion work into the work that I do. And it takes me two seconds of Googling as a person outside of their field. And I file, I find an entire subfield that talks about diversity, equity and inclusion in their area of expertise, then that going back to your wonderful word I use all the time now, willful ignorance, you have chosen not to pay attention to what in the world is going on here. And, you know, I think we we really need to think about, you know, where are we as far as are we at the true what I call true ignorance or willful ignorance, because there has to be one of the two once you've been told, and it's been highlighted to you that there's a problem. How now how are you going to burn? Are you going to be angry about it? Are you going to burn through it so you can then get to a place where you can work on these issues? Or are you going to be on fire for activism? I think that's at least three. There may be another level in there, Lisa, but there's at least three ways to burn um, for white folks to think through. How are they Mm -hmm. going to parlay this privilege into something that's productive Mm -hmm. for an entire society rather than just being Mm -hmm. pissed off about the fact that they've had privilege all this time and didn't know?
0: Yeah. And then who are you going to bring with you too? Right. So thinking about, Mm, um, mm -hmm. you know, with with that um, Supreme court case in the seventies, right. There, you know, it was one, one student that was on the docket, but you know, it was a much larger movement, um, backlash movement in response to affirmative action practices. And so, you know, as a faculty member, as an endurance sport leader, um, as a race director, you know, how, yeah, how you, decide to burn um and whether or not you bring people with you in your um combustion um i think (laughs) i think i think is is important right and throwing Mm -hmm. kind of throwing this concept of reverse racism out to essentially maintain the status quo right that's what that's what a white person is doing is it's, mm-hmm. it's racist to have black girls run, because if I were to have white girls run, I would be accused of racist. Well, no, because the running community, since its inception, has been majority. Has been majority. Whiter than
1: white. Yes. Exactly.
0: Right? Exactly. So um, the reason why black girls run, even though it actually is inclusive of all women, all girls and women, is because there is this um, hole, Right because of whiteness, because of a system of whiteness. So this woman who made that post on Instagram, like obviously she had, she was being affected by some fragility there for sure, but she wasn't taking a step back and looking at the system, right? So she had incomplete information and she wasn't taking the time. Um, And I can just see it in my head that she's bringing all these other white women with her, right, and so then you're starting to get into this uncontrolled forest fire. there's no, there's no control about it and it's, it's damaging and it's all kind of right, like orienting right. around this concept of reverse racism that doesn't even really exist.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly, exactly.
0: Well, and you know, uh, what seems
1: level and fair that's built upon a uneven foundation will always be uneven that's just the reality of it. And so when I hear the, those words of reverse racism, I feel like I hear you and I hear how you could feel that way, but you don't even realize that your foundation has been uneven from the jump that your socialization individually, your American system in general, all of it has been uneven from the beginning. And so, you know, the, it almost feels like an overcorrection to white folks when, when, Affirmative mm-hmm. action and things come mm-hmm. up. It's like, wait a minute. Well, hold up now. I I believe in, you know, people of color getting into school and I believe in et cetera, getting jobs. But why are we having this overcorrection? Overcorrection requires you to acknowledge how things have been incorrect from the jump. And we don't right. want to acknowledge that. We, we don't want that fundamental acknowledgement.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And I, I don't know, I think I do understand and hear what you're saying that white people think it's an overcorrection, but I think it's just a correction, right? Like your recalibration. Of course.
1: There you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. But yeah. To be absolutely. clear.
0: So like redressing the exclusion of the past now yes. is, a, is an appropriate and just yes. correction. It's not an yes. overcorrection.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, using our, um our analogy before, Lisa, we've talked about this before. If you and I you know, are under the same conditions at a race and we're, let's say we're pros, we're under the same conditions. We run the same pace on the average day and you get to start the Boston marathon an hour and a half before I do. There's never a fair chance to see who actually performed best because you've always been ahead. There is not an opportunity for Mm -hmm, me to catch up. mm -hmm. And so what we're saying is that in, at least in American society, things like affirmative action and other sorts of actions are trying to help people like Shauna, the runner to catch up because the rules were unfair from the beginning. We're mm-hmm. trying to help an entire system historically to catch up. And so, you know, given that white folks get mad quick about that. And and part of it is the short sightedness of understanding the history, um, the history of disenfranchisement and that, you know, just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, isn't a, adequate, uh, strategy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, to Mm -hmm. get people on a, on a fair playing field when you have folks that didn't have a boot with a strap at all. Some, and I'm, I'm hearkening back to some of the horrific things that happened in slavery. Some that did not have a foot to put a boot, a boot or a bootstrap on. So knowing that deep history, of course, you're going to feel defensive, Uh, but that doesn't let you off the hook of, of burning in one of these many ways. So I don't know. I I think we're going to have to, um, uh, get to writing and uh, mm-hmm. take that article to the next level. I, I, I hope we haven't beaten an analogy to death, but I do think um, that it's a good visual for trying to understand a system um, rather than just blaming individuals necessarily. That's a mm-hmm. great analogy.
0: Yeah, and we hope this conversation today has given you some um, food for thought over the next couple of weeks while we take a little break. Um, we'll be back in January. And um, send us your emails Uh, Send us your voice memos, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about this. It's a tough subject and I hope we've done it, um, you know, uh, done well in explaining it to you. Um, If not, send Mm -hmm. us questions and we'd be happy to address them further
1: absolutely. Well, and we're definitely going to drop that original article uh, because we want you to read it and <laughs> would like to hear your take on it because it was mind blowing when Lisa shared it with me. Um, but yeah, you know, this is a concept that we will be talking about for a long time. Uh, we we wrestled between talking about white fragility, talking about white privilege, talking about decentering whiteness. All of it, I think, will um, be common threads through what we'll talk about in the future. So um, last one until 2021, Lisa, we come a, a mighty long way on this podcast, I
0: tell you. We certainly have, and I'm, I'm really <laughs> hoping 2021 goes a little better than 2020. There you go. Amen to that. All right. Thanks, Lisa. All right. Bye. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at and find us on social at try to defy at dr gold speaks or at outspoken women in try i'm lisa i'm shauna thanks for listening stay unfazed folks see you
1: next time